overhead is a choice. And I think a lot of business owners when they're starting up, they get really excited. And I think that they blow money out the ass and I don't think it's necessary. And then one night after some liquid courage, I sent an email to casting. Sounds like you'd be a good drug dealer. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Well, you did buy a house in Guatemala, so. (laughs) (laughs) They probably make a lot more than me, honestly. I was just putting everything back into the business. So I wanted to have as much sideline revenue as possible for myself before I ended up putting myself on salary. And then persistence is really important. Persistence pays off and nothing is going to happen automatically. It usually happens when you're just about to quit and stop doing what you've been working on. My name is Megan Tarmy. I'm 36 years old. I live here in Scottsdale, Arizona. I started and founded the Caddy Girls, which is now the Caddy Group when I was in college at Coastal Carolina University. And what started in Myrtle Beach has now expanded to over 28 states here in the U.S. And I was on Shark Tank in 2014, which was a monumental boost for my business. And we have about 1,200 caddies and models on our talent roster at present. So in regards to bookings, we are not a millionaire company yet, but our trajectory is going that way. Thanks for coming on and sharing, because you're still kind of early on in your story. Although, like you said, you got in a shark tank. I think I was telling you, and hopefully anyone listening now, I mean, 95% or whatever, I think I've had on have been millionaires or in million in revenue, but it's always important to see where people are in their companies because you're still younger into it and trying to figure out your best foot forward. But it seems like you've had a lot of momentum as far as, I guess you're talking about your client pool, or if you want to give us a little bit more as far as like your numbers and give us a better idea of how big your company is. Yeah. I mean, I'd say we're on the path to do about, I don't know, half a million this year in sales and gross revenue. So this will be a big year for us. We've never luckily had a year in the red. We've only, you know, had profitable years, even in the midst of 2008 and a pandemic. So we like to call ourselves recession proof and pandemic proof. It's hard to scale a service-based business where you're relying on, on humans. And I didn't start with any capital. I've not had any kind of investments over the years. I own 100% of my company, but I also have zero debt. So I think if scalability wise, if we were to get bigger and go after those higher numbers as a business, we would probably end up franchising or I'm looking to probably sell in the next 10 years. It's not all about revenue too. I mean, whenever we talk to people and you hear big revenue numbers, I mean, what really matters at the end of the day too, is if you're profitable, right? So you're always able to do that. You know, people take different views of how they start businesses or, you know, if you're getting a service-based business versus a product-based and whatnot. So again, sounds like you've had some success and you've been at it for a while. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Caddy Group? Yeah. So, you know, I started this when I was in college. I was just trying to get by on the weekends by bartending and working as a shot girl in local nightclubs and bars. And I realized I wanted to work on the golf course. Myrtle Beach is the golf mecca of the East. And all these golfers and polos were coming in. I didn't understand what golf season even meant being from New Hampshire. And I was like, who are these people? These people tip a lot. I want to work on a golf course. So with my busy schedule at school, I was a cheerleader, full-time athlete at Coastal Carolina. It was very difficult to find that schedule that would allow me to do bev cart or something at a golf course. So I just won it and I was just printing out these really crappy cards off my computer and uh, just handing them out at my bar when I was bartending or selling shots. And it was just me and a couple of other coastal athletes and a couple of my girlfriends and we were winging it. And then, you know, it just was growing and growing and growing and growing. 
I moved to New York City, 2008, when I graduated from Coastal, I was done with the golf world. I wanted to work in TV and film and be in that industry, but the golfers were still calling for caddies and as were people that needed models for events or trade shows. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just take a break here, take a step back. I quit my job that I had up in New York. And then I focused solely on the business. And then six months later, ended up flying out to Culver City to be on Shark Tank, which obviously exploded our growth year over year, like 600% the year after we were on Shark Tank. I'm just rambling. I don't even know. <laughs> no, no, that works. Uh, Culver City, because I was looking up that. So I guess that's in California. Yes, yes. Culver City is in California. So Shark Tank's filmed right outside of LA. But I think I just went on a tangent instead of just telling what our business is. Basically, we essentially provide models or golf caddies for events. So at first, it was just solely for caddies for events, mostly female golf caddies that were models or athletes or some you know collegiate golfers on our team. And then we've since expanded to full service modeling agencies. So we staff trade shows, conventions, promos, beer sampling events, anything under the sun. And we built a talent pool from coast to coast of over 1,200 on our roster. We also provide bartenders and bar consulting for large-scale, high-volume events as well. Well, I think you helped, at least in the beginning, you gave us an idea of how it kind of got started and what you were doing there in the beginning. But just so everyone understands, it's just people would call you and you would send out some girls to help guys on the golf course. I mean, are they just giving them beverages and stuff and just going full 18 with them? Is that why they would call you? Yeah. So our average client is a golfer or golf group that has a big outing. They want to make it a little bit more fun. Maybe it's their warm up round for you know the week on their golf trip. So we actually have trained four caddies. So they're doing everything from reading greens to club selection, to raking every trap, fixing divots, fixing your pitch marks, helping maintain the course, keeping score, making sure your drink's full at all times. And it's incredible to watch girls that actually are really good caddies and people, the guys are impressed. They're just like, wow, I just thought you were going to be a pretty girl out here. And like, here you are reading these greens for me really well. So we try to offer like, that's our niche. Like we're not just cute girls sitting in a cart drinking a beer. Like the girls are running across the fairways to get people their, you know, their pitching wedge or their irons that they need. We also staff walking caddies that can carry bags in USGA sanctioned tournaments for qualifiers or, or things like that. So we do that often as well. Yeah, no, that definitely helps because I think maybe when we're hearing like those kind of models or whatever that are out there just kind of looking pretty, they're actually helping too, right? So that's your differentiator you're saying. And well, I guess what made you really want to do that? I mean, you did it one weekend, you said when you're in college and you're like, I made good money doing it. Maybe I can start a business doing this. There was an aha moment I had. I was sitting there with my shot tray trying to sell some shots to people. And uh, they're like, hey, you should come golfing with us tomorrow. And I was like, what do you mean? I don't know when I golf. I don't know anything about golf. And they're like, we'll pay you. And I was like, that's weird. No way. Like, weirdo. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're weirdos. And they're like, well, can you caddy? And I was like, yes. And I was like, sure. So it was literally just that. And I was like, Went back to my, you know, dorm or whatever, where I was living at the time. And I was looked at my roommate and I was like, what if we became caddies? And like, I just started handing out cards to, you know, these golfers coming into the bar. And she's like, yeah, sure. So I just went to Walmart, got some perforated edges, uh, business cards, printed out some really terrible cards. And just as a whim, started handing them out. And like the first guy I handed to, he's like, we want five tomorrow. Like, here's our tea time. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Okay. So I just grabbed a bunch of coastal cheerleaders and brought them with me. And we had no idea what we were doing, quite frankly, like no idea. But for a college student in 2006 to be working four and a half hours outdoors in the sunshine to walk away that day with 200 bucks cash in your pocket 
when we were, you know, bartending till three, four in the morning, doing all of our side work, dealing with drunk idiots at nightclubs environment. And, you know, the amount of hours we had to work to make that amount of money to make the on a Saturday afternoon. I was like, okay, I have something here. I'm going to keep doing this and just kept rolling. I know you said Coastal Carolina, but since it's worldwide, people are listening and maybe they might have a better idea. So you were in South Carolina. It's kind of Southeast, obviously, United States. And I guess well, Coastal Carolina is pretty close to the beach, the Myrtle Beach. And that's where you said you would do all the golfing good to help these guys caddy and whatnot. Yeah. So Myrtle Beach, it's called the golf mecca of the East because there's over 100 golf courses within a 50 mile radius. It's insane. So the Grand Strand area, which is that area that loops down from like Pauley's Island, South Carolina, up to the border of North Carolina and Calabash, that is the Grand Strand. It's a golf course every mile. And I'm from New Hampshire. I didn't know anything about the golf industry until moving there. But Coastal Carolina, Dustin Johnson went there. He lived below me my freshman year, actually. It's a big golf school. And Myrtle Beach is, is definitely like the top destination of the East for golf. Yeah. Before we go forward with your business story here, yeah, I was wondering what brought you to Coastal Carolina. So you said you were born and raised in New Hampshire? Yes. Born and raised in New Hampshire. My first school was HPU Hawaii Pacific that I was aiming for because they offer full rides for their cheerleaders. And I was a pretty hardcore gymnast cheerleader back then. And that kind of just fell apart last minute. So I was like, well, this school has, I was marine science major at the time and they had a good cheerleading team. So I drove down there, tried out for the team loved Myrtle Beach. I was just like, okay, we got palm trees. It's basically like Hawaii. This will work. And it's more affordable because it would allow me to have a job. So I was there within the month. You said you tried HBU? I was trying to go to HP, which is Hawaii Pacific University out of Oahu. Oahu. HP. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. So close enough. And I guess your parents would be happier. You're closer <laughs> to home, right? Exactly. Okay. What year did you do this in college when you started doing the caddy thing? I think we officially incorporated it as an LLC in 2007 when I was a junior at Coastal. So then you're doing it for a couple of years in college. How often are you doing it? Are you doing it every weekend instead of bartending or how did that work out? No, I would say, you know, we'd get a few bookings a month at first. And again, these people that tip so well, it was, it was enough that I could stay in school. I started this business because I don't live off my parents, nor would I ever. I didn't have the financial support coming in that some people have. And I actually got kicked out of the dorms. So I had to go get an apartment on my own freshman year at 18 and figure it out on my own. And that's when I was just hustling and grinding and working three or four different jobs, just trying to stay in school and pay my rent and all my utilities at 18. And so caddying was that way I could make 200 bucks in five hours to be able to make my rent paycheck that week. <laughs> so it was just sporadic and as much as I could. And then you have the same golf groups coming back year after year after year. It's their annual trip. So then you just start building out these client base of people. And so it'd be usually you said you get about 200 bucks for four or five hours of work. Is it per person? Yes. Per caddy. Yeah. Okay. When your friends did it too, did you take a cut of theirs at all or no? At first, no. I was like, look, I just want to share the wealth and show my friends this awesome opportunity. And I think at the time I was charging 99 bucks for 18 holes per caddy. The money went directly to them. I never took a cut because I was just trying to help my friends make money as well. And then I would say about a year in when we started rolling with more business, then I started upping the cost and taking my cut. And so what year did you graduate college? 2008. And so when you're graduating, did you do this full time or just tell us a transition from college to business world? So in 2008, I graduated from Coastal. I bought a house in Myrtle Beach. I was like, okay. And then I decided to move to New York City. And I actually was like sick of the golf world and 
we deal with a lot of stuff that you probably don't see on your end. But as a female in this male dominated sport in the Bible Belt, you get a lot of pushback from golf pros that are underpaid or people that miss the PGA cut. And they're just not happy people and kind of treating us like garbage. So I was like, I'm done. I'm going to New York City. I wanted to work in film and production and makeup artistry and stuff like that. So I kind of just ditched it, honestly. Energetic Austin here. And during the great reshuffle, a record number of employees are considering switching jobs. So now's your chance to try to attract them. LinkedIn Jobs is here to help you connect with the people you want to interview faster and for free. I bet you know what I love about LinkedIn Jobs, and that's just how quickly you can make that next virtual hire. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Yeah, we talked about totally ditching it. I mean, what else did you have to deal with? I mean, you said you were working with like guys who didn't make the PGA cut and were they just being mean to y'all or just tell us a little bit more? Yes. At the time, which we still deal with this today, but not, I wouldn't say as intensely as back then because we do call them out pretty publicly now. But there's been times where I've walked up to either caddy or golf at a course that we called ahead and said, hey, do you allow groups to bring their own four caddies? Yeah, sure. No problem. I show up guy comes running out of the clubhouse. What the hell are you doing here? And I'm like, excuse me, I'm wearing a polo. I'm wearing golf attire. I have my divot tool with me. I have my towel with me. I'm literally helping maintain their course and helping rake sand traps or fix pitch marks or whatever. And just because I'm a female, they literally assume that we're out there doing something, you know, salacious or inappropriate. I don't know. And I understand that there are competitors out there or 
sometimes guys bring out girls that are not up to par with what a golf course etiquette, you know, dress code would look like. But when we show up in golf attire and we love the game of golf and to have a guy come out and scream at you in your face, like literally I've had golf pros come out nearly spitting in my face to tell me to get the F off their property. I mean, I'm looking at if you go to your website too. So, I mean, it's not like you're wearing like bikinis or something. doing no, it, right? <laughs> you're wearing no. golf gear, I guess, because you're attractive females and you're going out there. And if you're wearing a skirt, that's what you're just saying that you're automatically put in there that you're not actually here to help with golf. But even if I paid for a round, I, what happens if that was my wife? Would they say something if that was the case, you know? I mean, that's happened to me multiple times where I showed up to golf as a fourth because now I'm an avid golfer where a course looks at me like, and how can I help you? Like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, excuse me? I paid for my effing tea time. I'm playing golf. But it's, you know, you're cute. You're wearing a skirt. You're not like looking like you're coming from the women's league and over 50 that they just automatically assume or they got some chip on their shoulder that we're out there making money with a bunch of dudes that can afford to get a bunch of caddies that have a lot of money. And maybe it's just jealousy or again i think that the a lot of the golf pros and management are underpaid and they're a little bitter i don't know yeah probably a combination of both but yeah combination of all the trifecta of things of why you're being a dickhead and you can say fucking by the way if you want to so. okay good, I'm a, <laughs> I, I swear a lot i swear a lot and i try not to on these shows yeah whatever floats your boat i mean that stinks that that would happen but yeah i think it's a combination of all those things so you just got fed you're like after college, I know you told us you went to New York after this. You're just like, I'm not worrying about this. Forget this. It was fun while I was in college and I'm going to do something else. Exactly. Yes. And I was actually working for Tau Group, opening up one of their new locations. It was a rooftop in Soho and bartending there till three, four, five in the morning and making tons of money and running around the city doing film work and background work and acting. But I still had these golfers calling me at like seven, eight in the morning wanting caddies. And I was so annoyed because I was like a vampire at that point living the nightlife and like, why are these people calling me? And I don't know who said it, but someone's like, you're an idiot. Like you have business falling in your lap and you don't even have to try. And like, what are you doing? Like you have people wanting to give you money and throwing money at you. Like, why don't you just work on that? So I kind of took a step back. I was like, all right. So I quit my job in, at Tao and I just went full force. I was like, I'm going to solely focus on this. I had a few glasses of wine one night and I ended up emailing Shark Tank and then somehow ended up on Shark Tank. And then it kind of was... All the way down from there. Well, so before you emailed Shark Tank, you totally quit your job and we're back into this kind of full time now, the caddy group? Yeah, I put in my two week notice and I just sat down and said, okay, I'm going to give this one last shot, see if I can make a living off of this entirely. So were you caddying with, because at this point it's still called the caddy girls. It's just easier. I think I say the caddy girls, but were you doing this just in New York with the girls you had met or because you said you were obviously in South Carolina before and that's a long ways away from New York. So I wasn't operating in New York at all because I've been living in Manhattan. You're so far out from any of the golf courses, there's transit and I didn't even have a car up there. So I was just still booking caddies back in Myrtle Beach area at the time. So I had like a small handful of girls that we were still sending out here and there. And it wasn't very busy, but we spent zero dollars on advertising, marketing, anything, nothing. And we still had just customers all the time. So were you living in New York or did you actually move back to South Carolina? I was living in New York. So I lived in Harlem for from 2008 for about eight years. I lived in New York City. I did have my place in Myrtle Beach as well. So I did go back and forth, you know, here and there. And then, you know, around the Shark Tank time. I spent a lot more time in Myrtle Beach and we did end up opening an office down there, a physical office 
after being on Shark Tank. So I was down there a lot more. Well, yeah, let's talk about the Shark Tank email. I guess after a couple of classes of wine, you send that. Did you forget that you actually sent the email after? <laughs> yeah, <up>? I did. <laughs> so it was more than a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> it was at least a whole bottle. Yeah, no, I was, I was totally drunk. <laughs> so it's so like three or four people had told me over like a year, like, hey, you should apply for Shark Tank. And I was like, that's so dumb. Like no one would ever choose me. And I loved the show. I was watching it all the time. So I was like, screw it. One day I downloaded the application form. I filled it all out. I put it in the packet, put the stamps on it. And then I was like, it sat in the back of my car. I was like, this is so stupid. I'm never sending this in. They would never pick me. It was literally just sitting in my back seat. I never sent it in. And then one night after some liquid courage, I sent an email to casting. And I was in Germany working a trade show at the time. And I kept getting calls from Los Angeles with voicemails from Vincent, from casting, from Shark Tank. And I was like, what the hell? Okay. And like, we want you to send in the application, do it right away. I was like, okay. Send it in like, okay, you made it to the next round. Every time they called me to tell me I made it the next round, it was like out of 40,000 applicants that season. I just kept being like, are you serious? Okay. And they're like, no, you're actually really organized and have your stuff on point compared to a lot of business owners. You would be surprised. So I was like, all right. So did you just keep doing videos? Like, tell us about the process and what year was this? This was in 2014. So that first call from them came in March and then it was loads of paperwork, the application, once you make it after that point, uh, I think they said uh, you're in the top 1500. And I was like, okay. So then they send more paperwork, a background check. They did a due diligence basically like, before we even go in there. They found stuff that I didn't even know existed, honestly. Like past boyfriends or what? They found like I was being sued. I didn't even know I was being sued. And they're like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was, <laughs> I was like crying because I was like, I didn't even know I was being sued for one. B, this is ruining everything in my chance to be on Shark Tank because I got in a car accident like, I don't know, a year and a half before that. And I didn't even know, but somehow they found that I was being sued by the people that had T-boned me at an intersection. And so they do a really good job on that check. But yeah, after that, they're like, okay, we want you to send in a video. And so I went all out on my video. I made the best video ever. And then they're like, okay, great. And they just kept saying like, you keep making it, but you might never even be on there. So it's kind of a stressful few months. And then they assign you to producers that help you through the process, like your liaisons throughout it. And I had Kate Ryu and Mike McGood, and they were amazing. And they were so helpful. I just like would call me and haunt me like four times a week, helping me get my stuff in. But I got everything they needed like within 24 hours. And they're like, you don't understand like how fast and efficient you are compared to a lot of people we deal with. And that's why you keep moving forward. Because if they called me, I would drop everything and just get the paperwork done and send it immediately. I had every single booking on paper from the time I started my business, even unofficially up to that day, to the time who worked, like to the penny of what we had pulled in. So they were impressed with that as well. But through all these rounds, because again, I have no clue. I mean, I've had quite a few Shark Tank people on, but like even in the 2014, I'm sure it's different now, but the process, would you have to take like a video of yourself talking about your company or you just send in numbers? Just tell us about the, because I'm sure this is kind of more behind the scenes where I'm sure people are interested in that process a little bit more. Yeah. So the initial application is kind of a broader view at, at your business. Yes, they do want to know exact numbers of your revenue and your net revenue, all about your business. And then your application video, I really think is mostly to see like, how is your presence on camera? I like took it to level 10. I did a round of back handspring on my application video because I was a coastal cheerleader. And that's kind of how I started my business was through all of that. And the process is mostly paperwork, but that video is really important. So I had like paid a friend to actually like make it cut, edited really nicely. You just talk about your business and yourself and why you should be on Shark Tank. 
And did you just do one video or each round? Did you have to do another one or like how'd that work? Just one. Gotcha. It seems like you're good at like making sure you stand out too, right? By doing that. There's some people who might be cheerleaders who don't even think to do that. You know, you doing that on a, a video to start. I mean, I couldn't do that. Yeah. So there's no way I would do that. And how many business people would actually <laughs> do that? You're probably the only one, right? I'm probably the only one. Yeah. For sure. I think that's important as far as like marketing too, because I mean, your business got started off because you're good at marketing. Like you had attractive females and like, you're going to market yourself, right? I think that's important to think about versus if you had dressed up like you were a 50 year old woman and all the girls that went to the golf courses, then you wouldn't have stood out. I think it was easy for people to understand and know your business because then they're like, oh yeah, those are the attractive girls who do this. Here's their card. And it's TV. I mean, like the aesthetic of using attractive people for promotion of any ad you see in the world. Like, I think that's obviously gave us an advantage, but at the end of the day, they also reiterated like, Hey, like you actually are on top of your shit. You know, it's not just that you guys are cute girls and pink shirts that they made us wear. I wasn't about the pink shirts, but they made us wear that. <laughs> Did you not wear pink early on? Cause that's all I see now. Well, it's just what the Shark Tank people wanted for us. I wanted more sporty look a more athletic look, but they wanted something that was going to be more pop. And I was like, whatever, you're the experts. Yeah, smart. So well, tell us leading up to, you told us like, you know, I guess leading up to Shark Tank, tell us about your actual appearance and how that went. So you go through all these steps and all these things. And I, I like even quit drinking before the show, like three weeks before, because I wanted to be like super on top of my stuff and, and be able to be pretty sharp. And when they said, hey, here's your tickets, you're flying out to L.A., then I was like, oh, my God, this is real. This is happening. And then you get to L.A. and they're like, oh, by the way, you have to pitch this in front of all the ABC executives and producers. We need to make sure that it's kosher first. And if you bomb, like, you're probably going to go home and you're never going to go in front of the sharks. So then it's like, okay, oh, my God, even more pressure. So that was on, it's like a Friday or Saturday, I don't know. And I was the first person to drive a motorized vehicle through those doors on Shark Tank ever in history. So they were like really nervous. I also had a, a golf cart that was custom made for Betty White for a production previously. So it was a really cute pink golf cart we were really excited about. But so they were nervous. I pretty much nailed the ABC. because I feel like I was more nervous for that first one, but I felt good. I felt confident. And then they're like, okay, you're going for the Sharks Sunday at this time. And it happened to be Father's Day. And I got them right after lunch. So they're full. They're happy. They're in a good mood. I was in there for over an hour just getting grilled with questions. And yeah, then you get out and they're like, oh, just kidding. It might never air. Like like 20% never even end up on TV, but good job. So then you're like, holy shit, I just went through all this for six months and it might never air. And let alone that I didn't ever expect to get on Shark Tank, obviously. My business, it's not something you can manufacture and just like wholesale and distribute all over the country or over the world. So the fact I even got on there was a miracle. And then the fact I got an offer from Kevin O'Leary, I was not expecting to get an offer. I'm a realist. And when he gave an offer, I was like, are you kidding me? It was a terrible offer. But regardless, I'm like dropping F-bombs in the tank. And you see me swear on live TV. I think I said, damn it, about seven times. But you know, I end up turning him down eventually after counter-offering him per Mark Cuban, pushing me to counter-offer him. And I walked away. But I knew the exposure, 8 million people saw our business overnight. So we couldn't have been more thrilled with the opportunity. Plus, I learned a ton about my business and, and all of it. So what was the offer? You said he gave you a shitty offer, but what was it? At the time, I was asking for, I think, 100000 at 10% or 15% or something. And he wanted 50%. So I got him on one side and I got Mark Cuban saying, like, make it just counter offer, counter offer. And I'm like, no, fuck this guy. 
he wants half my business. <laughs> so you valued yours at a million and then he valued it, what, like a hundred thousand or something? I don't even know. I was just like, no way, man, this is not a divorce. You're not getting half. And um, I eventually walked away from it, but super lucky to even have been on there. Like, let's be real. That was incredible. And uh, it definitely helped legitimize us a lot in the golf industry as well with some of those you know, issues I was discussing earlier regarding mean golf pros. So. so how long did it take to air from when you actually recorded it? So we recorded it in Father's Day, which was June. And then again, you don't know if you're even going to ever air after all of that. They called me and they said, hey, we want to film you for the home package. Every episode you see that beginning company where they show like the background of the company or them in the office or in the factory working, that's the home package. And when they called me regarding wanting to come to Myrtle Beach, I think it was in September to film the home package. I was like, oh my God, this means it's going to air. Secondly, we're going to get double airtime from everyone else because they're going to come down here and film us even more. So at that point, we knew it was going to air. And then we filmed in September and then it ended up airing in October. So the whole process from beginning to end was like March I applied. Actually, I think it was February I applied. They called me in March. June we filmed, home package filming in September, and then it aired in October. Well, yeah, that was pretty quick, I guess, after they know you were going to be on there. Fast. Yeah. I know. Faster than I would think. I mean, I honestly, I thought it might be just like a year because I know a lot of them take a while before with all the editing and whatnot, but maybe it's maybe they pushed you forward or not. But what happened after it actually aired? We just exploded. My email inbox exploded. I had like a hundred offers overnight from investors across the country. And at that point I'm super a frazzled because we are also getting super busy. But after I knew we were going to air, I hit the road and I went to five markets in the U S on my own dime. And I started just recruiting and training and I just geared up for when I knew that that episode was going to air to have people on standby in every major market that we might get bookings in. So on the back end, we were prepared our email inbox exploded. I think our website like crashed at one point because of the traffic. And we just started rolling from there and getting busy and busy. I didn't feel comfortable taking on an investor at that point because I was like, hey, we have some organic growth. Like, why am I going to take money from someone I'm going to have to pay back later? And that was it. I guess recruiting and everything. So, I mean, literally after it hit, did everything double or triple or like what was the response? So like our busiest months are spring and fall and year over year, we grew 600% on those months. Do you know, have an idea of how big revenue got? I know you say 600%, but I guess I'm just trying to have a better perspective. I think when I went on the tank, we were doing like $100,000 in gross revenue. And by the next year end, it was like five times that. Awesome. And a lot of people go to like, yeah, our sales didn't really go up. And I'm like, how? Like, how did it not go up? Like, what were you doing? Like, how can you not gone up? I don't get it. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect product for the guys who are probably watching too. Cause I mean, I think a lot, a good amount of people watch, but you know, I'm thinking business oriented people are watching. And especially if it's men who like to golf, like I think it's automatic for them. But I agree with you. You think it'd go up no matter what for everybody, but at least at some percentage, it seemed like, yeah, you being able to 5X your revenue is pretty awesome. You were doing this full time as well at the time? Uh, no, I had like three other side gigs, just like small things. Like I was doing trade shows for different companies and, and stuff like that. But this was my main focus at the time. Was it just not making enough money for you to do it full time if you wanted to? Or did you like doing these other jobs? Why were you kind of doing this as a side hustle versus trying to go all in? I would say because the business wasn't entirely normalized, meaning I wasn't paying myself a salary at the time. I was just putting everything back into the business. So I wanted to have as much sideline revenue as possible for myself before I ended up putting myself on salary a couple years ago. 
So yes and no. I could have survived off it, yes, but I'm one of those people that I always have to have four or five income streams coming in. To this day, I even have a full-time salary job now on top of running my business. Well, yeah, I guess we can get into that before the end of the conversation. But I think that's smart because, again, there's a lot of people who, you know, nervous about going full time. And if you want to wait as long as you can until you feel comfortable, I think anyone who's listening now, you got to have to go with your heart, which is some people are like, go all in, quit your job and just go in. But especially like you're saying, if you get really busy over summer with your business and not so busy during winter, then it's a little bit different. So you got to go with what makes you comfortable. Yes, exactly. And so after you did Shark Tank, you said you were kind of in South Carolina. You had opened up an office there. Did you move back there after Shark Tank? I know you're saying you're in New York for a few years, but I'm just trying to get a feel because I know you don't even live there now. I'm just trying to feel like where you moved around. Yeah. So everything kind of all happened at once in like 2000, I don't know, 15, 16. I went through a breakup. Also, my landlord in New York City sold my apartment like very suddenly and was like, hey, by the way, you have to move out in 30 days. So I was like, shit. Was that the guy you're in a relationship with? No, no. No, but <laughs> I'm like, that yeah. would make sense. <laughs> yeah. So everything was just kind of shit was kind of hitting the fan left and right. And I was like, all right. And I had a three story unit that I was renting. It was the office was below it. And we had a two story apartment above it that my marketing manager was living in. So I actually ended up back in Myrtle Beach pretty much full time after leaving New York for about a year or two. And then I realized offices are a giant waste of space. Totally dumb overhead to have. Don't even need it. So got rid of that. And then I moved out here to sunny Arizona three years ago, and I would never go back to the East Coast. <laughs> you never go back to Myrtle Beach? I love Myrtle Beach, and I love the opportunities it's given me, but I can't. I would never leave Scottsdale. There's no way. Are you one of the thousands of businesses getting hammered by supply chain issues? Are you tired of paying insane shipping costs and waiting months for stuff to come from China? Are you still paying those 25% trade war tariffs? Why are you doing that? Zipbox.com makes it easy for U.S. businesses to partner with factories in Mexico. And you can find everything there. Clothes, packaging, beauty products, building supplies, and a lot more. With new products being added every single day. All of the factories on Zipbox are verified with no shady middlemen like you can find on those other manufacturer websites. If you want to ditch the trade war tariffs, pay 75% lower shipping costs, and get your deliveries in 5 to 10 days, not weeks, well, try Zipbox.com. For Valentine's Day, I wanted to surprise my wife by manufacturing my first adult product. And guess where I was able to find a manufacturer to produce my big product? It was Zipbox.com. That's Z-I-P-F-O-X dot com. There's no membership fee and you can search without even creating an account. So try Zipbox dot com today. So I know this past Friday was your first group call. Did you uh, get the answer you were looking for? Actually, I got a really good answer that led to like more questions. So those are like the best answers. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I try to make sure all of our new members get their questions answered first. Yeah, that was perfect. That was definitely perfect. Yeah, I was like, okay, now I've got to research this and ask my team this. Like, it was perfect. Yeah. But you did move back, you were saying, after you got kicked out of New York for three years or so, and then you moved into where you are today? Yeah. And where you are today, like you're saying, just outside Phoenix, or I've heard of Scottsdale, I think most people have. Isn't that kind of like a golfing hub too? Yeah. So this is like the golf mecca of the West. 
And it's like the same volume of courses per square mile here as Myrtle Beach, but we just never have to deal with rain or hurricanes or frost delays. Or the Bible Belt, right? Or jerks at the <laughs> pro shop that, yeah, no, it's way more laid back. People are awesome out here. The tournaments out here are huge. And the money out here for charity tournaments and celebrity tournaments is big too. So I just saw this as a really a market that was growing exponentially for us. and. I decided to come out here just to check it out for a year. I ended up buying a, a house out here two years ago, and I love it here. And so as you're making these transitions and moving, you're saying you have a full-time job now, but how about we talk about, you know, after Shark Tank and after you moved from New York, did you have a side hustle? Like, again, this was your side hustle the whole time and you had permanent jobs? After New York, I was still working in, I was a makeup artist. I was doing acting work. I was doing trade show promotional work, which basically trade shows would hire me as their lead person on site to handle like lead generation or consulting or things like that. Three companies I worked with for over 10 years, actually. So I've been all over the world with them. So that was kind of like my little side hustles. Also, I love bartending. I would pick up any bartending gig on the planet on, as a side hustle. So during the summertime, I started a like under the umbrella of Caddy Girls bartending company called the Gin Gypsies. So we specialize in staffing high volume festivals, concerts, bike rallies, you know, like motorcycle rallies like Sturgis or Moto Beach and stuff like that. So when it wasn't spring or fall, I was bartending at motorcycle rallies uh, during the summer. But I guess me hearing about these side jobs that you were doing, I mean, really, you're still basically an independent contractor. You're still your kind of your own boss, even though you're working for somebody. It's not like you just went to an office and worked nine to five, right? Yeah, I could never survive a nine to five office job. So even like right now, I have a full-time job in HR and I work remotely. But even back then, when you're doing all these other jobs and you're making that extra money, like, what are you doing with all your money? <laughs> I, <laughs> I squirrel it away. <laughs> it's under my bed. Just kidding. I just save, 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 save. I bought a house in Guatemala in cash. <laughs> so I started a nonprofit in 2015, started going to Guatemala uh, to volunteer with a project down there with kids. And then I just fell in love with it. And I actually like shifted my whole entrepreneur mentality a little bit to more to giving back than just making money. So I kind of slowed down a little bit in 2015 and started focusing on that. I bought a house down there with my saved money in 2017. Yeah. So, and then I spend my money on trips and then I save. That's it. Because some people save their money and they're using it in the business and maybe their business is not profitable. And it just sounds like you said yours has always been profitable and then you're doing all these side gigs and it sounds like you're good at making and generating money for yourself, you know, being profitable that way. So yeah, it sounds like it's buying real estate is where most of it's gone. Yeah. I purchased three properties by 30. So that was one of my goals. I bought my first one at 21. I sold that last summer. I bought uh, my place in Guatemala in 2017. And then I bought my place here in Arizona in 2019. So yeah. When did you have that goal to buy three houses by 30? That was in my 20s. That was one of my first you know, focuses. But unfortunately, my first place I bought during a really bad time in 2008, like early 2008, right before the bubble burst. And then like the builders just set their tools down one day in that development and were like, we're done. And I was like, wait, you guys didn't like seal the pavement yet on the driveway. They're like, nope, the company went bankrupt. So that was obviously a hard lesson to learn was timing, buying real estate the wrong, right or wrong time. I think I broke even on that place when I sold it, honestly, but I would love to have more real estate. So all of my properties, I Airbnb out as well. So that's another revenue stream that I, I have regularly coming in. 
when you had the goal of buying the houses, have you always been like a goal setter? Yes, for sure. To this day, like I have uh, basically like these little planners of calendars that I keep every single year since I was 18 years old. I can open up that planner and tell you where I was on that day and exactly how much I made at a gig or my job to the penny that day. Um, and that goes all the way back to 2003. Well, sounds like you'd be a good drug dealer. <laughs> I, you never know. <laughs> Well, you did buy a house in Guatemala, so. <laughs> <laughs> they probably make a lot more than me, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, was it scary buying a house in Guatemala? Yeah, it was. But uh, I always live on the edge of like doing shit like that. But it was a combination of just having really good people around me that I trusted helping me through the process. Because down there, you have people that steal titles and they can try to sell it to you as their own and then come back and take it from you. But, you know, just kind of shady stuff. I try to get a mortgage down there. They're like, oh yeah, we got a, a loan guy for you. Uh, the interest is 20%. And I was like, oh my God, this is nuts. Meanwhile, no one in the US is going to write off a loan for something to going to Guatemala. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to sell some of my handbags and I'm just going to put down 66% now. And I told the people that own the home and I said, I'll give you the rest in six months. If not, you can keep the house. And we put that on paper with an attorney, great attorney down there. And um, I just did it. So I guess when you give your contact info at the end, if someone's buying a house in Guatemala, you know, a good attorney they can talk to. Yes, absolutely. And I know the best real estate agents and it is the most magical, wonderful place, despite what uh, the news tells you. I mean, the news makes me feel bad for being white. So I think we all... <laughs> <I know. laughs> I know, right? Anyone who watches the news, you will not feel good about yourself, no matter what age or demographic, like they will tell you you're not doing a good thing. And here's what it is. So fortunately, a lot more people have stopped watching it, I think. And hopefully that trend continues. So when you moved to Scottsdale again, and you said you did the gin gypsies when you're up in New York, because I'm just trying to keep track of everything while you're doing, because it sounds like, are you super good at like managing your time and these little side businesses? Because obviously you said in your planner, you're good at keeping track of where you are and how much money you made in a day and whatnot. But it's almost hard just to imagine you having all these side gigs and keeping your time organized to be successful in all of them. I think it's severe ADHD, honestly. I can't do the same thing consecutively. I have to be doing a different thing every day or going new places. And we still do the gin gypsies. It's, it's a great niche. It's just an awesome, it's a complete polar opposite of the golf world of stuffy country club, you know, D bags that we deal with there. It's like awesome bikers that were, you know, serving in Sturgis and everyone kind of let their hair down and wear cowboy boots and kick people in the face on the bar. And it's just like, the total opposite. So you gotta have that balance. That's how I feel of different industries that I'm working in because I don't know, I, I try to spread out to as many different industries as possible because if I was only doing conventions and trade shows, I would have been out of business the last two years with COVID. Luckily, we had golf where it was like a safer sport. So people were still booking their caddies. You know, when it's not golf season, we gotta have something else to have our girls be making money. So that's why we introduced the bartending team. The more, the better that I can have my hands in. I believe in sideline revenues. And if someone calls me to staff anything, you know, I try to look at it as like, okay, how does this industry fit in with what we're doing? And how can we scale that and get into more trade shows or whether it's liquor store tastings or something like that? If you're planning out, like even just starting a new year or whatnot, do you have like certain days that you're doing something for one company versus doing HR for, you said you do that now for another company too? Like, how do you divvy that up or plan that out? Are you pretty good at that? I would say I'm pretty good. I try to focus on my full-time job Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, because that's the slowest time for caddying, golf tournaments, trade shows. 
But luckily I have my boss understands my business and we made a deal from the get go. I'm like, look, I have my company. This comes first. I will do everything in my power to do my job as, as well as I possibly can for you. But I need flexibility on hours. So generally, if I have like a tournament on like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then I am working overtime into midnight, 1am getting my stuff done for onboarding or whatever I'm doing for the full-time job. And I happily will work on Saturdays or Sundays also to catch up to get, make sure that all my work is done for my full-time job. Actually, I kind of do the same thing. And I think it's important like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays when I book interviews, like Monday and Friday, I don't do any of that because I'd like to be flexible in what I'm doing because you can't do everything every day, right? I don't think you can. I think it'd be kind of difficult. And if you just, at least in your head, mentally, you're prepared. You're like, okay, this will be gin gypsies on Fridays and something else on Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is your normal HR company that you're working for. I think that helps a lot of people. Because again, I'd, I'd like people to think about like how they can be flexible in their jobs now, especially post COVID. A lot of people get to work from home. So you, they have this opportunity to do something that you did and are doing. People used to get stuck in and you had to go to your job and go to work. And now you don't have to do that anymore. So try to use these kind of tips of like how you were able to grow your side hustle from anyone who even has a nine to five right now. Yeah. And I've always had my businesses and side jobs. And I believe that's the only way to start building wealth is these multiple revenue streams coming in at, at different things. Even if you can Airbnb out, like my place right now is rented out to the brim in Guatemala while I'm gone. And I don't even know what's going on half the time, but I see checks coming in. So it's making money, but you just have to figure out balance. I am a habitual multitasker, which is a problem because I know that if you're focusing on nine things at once, it's just my ADD that it's definitely not as effective and it's something I'm working on <laughs> for sure. But everyone's a little different. As long as you at least know that, then you're probably better off than if you didn't know that, right? But it's like, okay, maybe I have this issue where I'm trying to multitask too many things, but at least you being cognizant, you might have multitasked 20 things instead of nine, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I'll just yell. I'll be like, Alexa, set timer for 30 minutes. I'll be like, okay, I'm going to answer my emails for 30 minutes for Caddy Girls. And then I got to go back to my other job. And I will set an alarm for 30 minutes to work on that task. And I try to break it up into chunks of like, okay, I have to focus on this one thing and not have my phone in front of me, not have my emails open while I'm focusing on this. So, well, it seems like it's been good for you as far as it's worked out. I mean, you seem like you've been pretty successful up till today, don't you think? I'm happy. That's the most important part. It doesn't really matter how much money you have and whatever you're doing, you know, as long as you're happy. So, what are your plans for the future? You know, I'm trying to continue. We started throwing our own golf tournaments. And after 15 years of working other ones and seeing how bad they suck or how great they are, I kind of took all of these little parts and bits of the most fun golf tournaments that I had worked or staffed. And we put it into our own tournament. We launched that last June. Our first one on Myrtle Beach is sold out in 72 hours. We posted on Friday. It was sold out by Monday. We raised over $30,000 for our charity and our kids in Guatemala. So to me, that success, I might not have made a ton of money off of it, but I did it for a good cause. And we really saw where the money's going, which is why I started my nonprofit. Because I just was working on these tournaments where it's just like a bunch of drunk, rich people. And they never even talked about what the cause was or where the money was going. So we're trying to change that. And we bring our caddies four or five times a year down to Guatemala to volunteer with the kids that these funds directly impact and help. So that's just my main focus right now. Our next tournament is this June in Myrtle Beach. It's going to be 250 golfers. So it's double the field of last year, a three-day event. And I love hosting and throwing events. So that's one thing that we're going to shift towards is more large-scale tournaments, charity tournaments, celebrity tournaments, our own tournament, and kind of straying away from the small bachelor party outings. 
Have those stressed you out? Yeah, they're annoying. <laughs> we love them, but they just don't have golf etiquette. That's all. No, yeah, understood. I mean, I'm a guy and I could imagine, you know, but I mean, just fun wise, like, do you do anything for fun? Because, you know, all these side businesses you are doing, it doesn't seem like you have much free time. That's why I do what I love. And my work is so much fun. Like I love every aspect, even when I'm out there caddying, like I'm having a freaking blast. I love the competitive aspect. I'm an athlete. I come from a family of athletic competitive people. I get to travel all over the country and even to some islands with my best friends that are working alongside me and we're doing what we love and we're making great money. And a lot of times it's going back to a nonprofit or helping some kind of charity. So I have so much fun while I'm working. Half the time, it doesn't feel like work. And when I do have free time, I'm booking a ticket to fly somewhere. And and that's my fun is, is traveling. I mean, I didn't know if that was 100% sure if that was like, if your job is actually like, you know, fun or not. But to me, it sounded like fun. So that's why I thought it was important to bring up too. Is like, you know, if you're doing a side business, you want to make sure you're doing something that you're having fun with, because then you're going to actually enjoy it versus if you had all these side businesses and you kind of liked it, but not a lot. I mean, I don't think you'd have this many side businesses. You got to enjoy what you're doing. There really is some point of like, if you're not enjoying it, there's no way I think you could work this hard. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, what we want to create is an experience for people. And it's something that they remember forever. You can get an awesome swag bag all day long at some tournament with a bunch of cool stuff in it. But the stuff's in the trash by the following year. Like if you had a hilarious time out with your friends and like two of the caddy girls that are just like talking shit to you, like it just creates this experiential entire thing. You're five hours in a golf cart with someone. You get to know them. Like you create networking and connections with people from all over the world. It's the best job I've ever had. Catting hands down that I absolutely enjoy every minute of. And then you factor in like we're bartending at these concerts. Like I was front row of Kid Rock making 1200 bucks in cash last fall bartending at a bike rally. Like, how can you beat that? <laughs> like, it was a great day. My job and what I want to do is make everything more fun for people because people are too miserable and they're too serious and life is too short. And I think that work should be fun. And I want to make someone's day better too. Like if I'm catting for them or making them a drink. It sounds like fun. And I definitely agree with you, especially coming out of COVID, hopefully. <laughs> it always sounds like we're going to and then maybe not and whatever. Uh, but I think people hopefully will understand that like experiential stuff, like you're saying, like traveling and you being at events and stuff. I think that's where people actually get the most joy. It's not buying a new boat or a new car or, or you know anything like that. It's having fun and doing these things because you'll always remember that. So. You said Dustin Johnson actually, you know, went to Coastal Carolina. That's what I thought, too. So have you reached out to him to try to rep y'all at all? <laughs> so he was actually roommates with my college boyfriend. So I know Dustin and we used to all party back in, in college at the time. But no, I, I mean, I've run into him in Royal Beach like since he blew up. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. He's like, oh, no. Like, it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's like wild to watch out all the people we, we hung with in college. Like, he's on top. He's like number one golf in the world right now. And uh, now I've thought about, you know, being like, hey, can you give us a little shout out? But he's too busy. His wife uh, has some risque photos. <laughs> Paulina Gretzky. Right? Yes. Did she go to school with y'all? No, no. Okay. I feel like she could be a caddy girl. No, you haven't tried recruiting her? I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. Then you, you should. Yeah, actually, maybe you could have her do that for one of them. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, it's serious. Like for one of your tournaments or something, you know, you would blow up like doing that. I think she would enjoy doing it based on what I've seen of her pictures. You don't think so? Yeah. Has she ever worked ever? 
Probably not, but I don't think she'd consider this working, you know? True. Just doing her natural habitat. <laughs> right. And if anyone doesn't know, like I said, Dustin Johnson is an awesome golfer. And then Paulina Gretzky, that's Wayne Gretzky's daughter, in case y'all are wondering. And then they married. So she really, Wayne Gretzky, in case people don't know, is the best hockey player of all time. So she probably did, has never had to work. But hey, you, marketing 101, you might be able to get her to do it. I bet you could. Is there anything else in your story that you think anyone listening now who's an entrepreneur could learn from before we get off the call? have much. I just, I know that a lot of people want instant gratification syndrome is one thing that holds a lot of small businesses back. And I didn't really make a profit. I didn't lose money. I started it with $200 in my bank account, but it took two years to like actually make a profit. And that's why I had all these other side jobs and overhead is a choice. And I think a lot of business owners when they're starting up, they get really excited. And I think that they blow money out the ass and I don't think it's necessary. So that's one thing I also learned from being in the carts caddying for millionaires. I always ask them a ton of questions. I probably haunt them with too many questions because I want to know how they started. What are they doing? You know, what's the piece of advice? And, and one thing I hear a lot is like overhead is a choice. And then persistence is really important. Persistence pays off and nothing is going to happen automatically. It usually happens when you're just about to quit and stop doing what you've been working on. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. Oh, I appreciate you becoming a Patreon. Yeah, absolutely, man. I've been listening to your stuff. And mostly it was really just to provide a little support. And I think I'll probably go up to the next level next year because I think it's worthwhile to help support you for all the work you put in. But now that I can get down there and listen to the second parts and the calls with people, I think that's really important too. I was really going to ask, like, how do you keep motivated or learn more about business? And it sounds like, I think this is important. Everyone has someone in their life or someone they can talk to. Hopefully you're learning from this podcast, obviously, but you can reach out to a business person who's older or whatever. They're happy to give you advice if you ask for it, you know, and it sounds like you were never scared to do that. And I think too many people get scared to do something like that. And it's like, it's so easy. Like those people really probably don't get asked very much at all, you know? And it's like, if you would just take the time to talk to someone and listen for a few minutes, you can learn a lot. So it seems like that's kind of where you got your business acumen. Yeah. I had people around me that were super, super helpful. Like I have mentors that came out of nowhere. I don't even know until now, like in retrospect, that like how much they help my business and teach me things. Cause I was an idiot. I was, I was 20 years old when I started my company. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I didn't know what liquidity was. I had no idea. So I was just surrounding myself with people and asking all the questions. And I was annoying everyone, especially, you know, prepping for Shark Tank. I would sit down with people for hours at a time and, and go over my books and everything. So find a mentor in your space as well. And I mean, that's the art of giving back once you've made it and you're successful. I think anyone would be happy to do that if you reach out. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time to tell your story. I think you kind of sold yourself short as well. When we were talking about earlier, you're talking about some of the people I've had on have millions of revenues, but with all these side businesses and you being profitable and all of them, again, just to reemphasize, I think that's most important at the end of the day, business-wise, is that you're generating that profit, that you can keep doing the things that you want to do. Because there's a lot of people who end up making a $10 million, $100 million business, and then they end up kind of being miserable, you know? It makes sure that you're doing something that you enjoy. And it sounds like you're doing that. So, you know, I think that's the, the number one thing of being happy. 
Yeah, I'm happy. I'm content. More money, more problems. I've heard that from everyone as well that I caddy for. They're very well to do. And um, at this point, we are trying to grow. But I also, once I made that kind of shift to start giving back and focus more energy on, um, you know, like helping kids in Guatemala or going and volunteering at a, something for our veterans. Like I found out that that like that's just as fulfilling as, you know, my bottom line on my balance sheets and that's something that kind of shifted my whole perspective and that's made me a lot happier as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, maybe before, and I think it's important when you're getting started, like when you're younger, it's like maybe you're putting in the 40, 50, 60 hours a week to get started in business and whatnot. But as you age, you're like, maybe you could work an extra 10 hours at work, but maybe taking that extra few hours and going to do something else that you enjoy, you find much more fulfillment. Like you said, being able to help with nonprofits or do other things other than just focus on grinding your ass out in front of a computer all day and just looking at the bottom line, then you aren't interacting with people too. You're losing that social interaction. It seems like you're able to fulfill that for other people and yourself by, you know, the business you do. So again, thanks for coming on. And I think it was very inspirational, especially for anyone who not even just getting started, but just overall happiness. Make sure that what you're looking at after you build that business, that if you're not happy, maybe you need to start thinking about some of these other things. So I think that was important. Yes. Balance. Balance is good. What is the best way for someone to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview? Well, my email is Megan at thecaddygirls.com. That's Megan with an H, M-E-G-H-A-N, and it's at thecaddygirls.com. That's C-A-D-D-Y, girls.com. Or you can find me on Instagram, which is, what is my Instagram? It's at Megan Tarmy, just my name, or LinkedIn, Megan Tarmy. And if they go to your website, they can hire y'all as well, right? All across the U.S.? Yeah. If you ever need staff for any kind of events or golf caddies or a tournament help, uh, it's www.thecaddygirls.com. How about the gin gypsies? Because maybe other people are interested in that too. And that is the www.gingypsies.com. You bartend for anywhere? Pretty much anywhere. We'll go anywhere. We just got offered for Lake of the Ozarks this summer and I'm like thinking about gearing up to go do that. So I guess they, uh, they can reach out to you on those two opportunities if they're, they need help with that. So again, thanks for coming on, Megan, and I appreciate you doing the interview. Thank you, Austin. Nice to meet you. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Not to be confused with Two Girls in a Cup. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now.